Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We've come to the end of the first half of this epistle of Paul to us, through the churches that were in Galatia. Remember, the main thrust of this book is to address a distortion of the gospel, which rendered it no gospel at all. But some were teaching that you had to add to faith in Christ some of the old Jewish rites and rituals, namely circumcision, some of the feasts. The Judaizers uh, had claimed that they had believed in Christ as Messiah, but did not want to let go of some of those trappings that identified them ethnically and culturally. And when Gentiles who weren't familiar with that background came to Christ with all the baggage they brought, the Judaizers looked and said, that's not right that they would be able to come to the same status as us without having to go, go through some of these things. And so it can't be just Christ. You've also got to have, and Paul says, no, that's not the gospel. It wasn't the gospel before, because circumcision never saved anybody. Uh, the law never saved anybody. In fact, he says earlier in this chapter that no one is made right with God by works of the law, by obedience, by deeds, only by faith in Christ, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law. Faith in Christ is the only way we are just before God, justified before God, made right before God. So now he comes to the end of chapter 3, which is really a kind of a climax to the first half of the book. And I want to pick up at verse 26, reading down to verse 29 of Galatians 3, as we continue in Paul's Magna Carta concerning how a person may be right with God. Verse 26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Let us pray. Father, thank you for Galatians. Thank you for what it teaches us about being right with you, that it only comes through faith in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help us better understand our identity. Help us, Lord, see through a proper lens that we might interpret all of our life, all of its meaning, everything we do through the lens of this primary identity that you give us as your children. Lord, I pray that you would comfort those uh, who are discomforted, who are afflicted today, and that in a sense you would afflict those who are comfortable. And I pray, God, that we would be made agents of your grace to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's true that everyone clings to a certain identity. If I asked you who you are or what you do, which are common questions, mostly what do you do, it's a question people ask you no matter where you go, what do you do, who are you, you would respond in various ways using different terms to identify you. And you would usually use the term that you spend the most time on. I'm a mom. I'm a stay-at-home mom. And you describe, because that takes up so much of your time and so much of your passion, you describe yourself as a stay-at-home mom. Or you might say that um, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm a musician, I'm an athlete, I'm a technician, I'm a worker at such and such a place. You spend so much of your time there that you tend to think in terms of your identity being wrapped up in that thing you do, or the thing you're passionate about. I remember just a, a week ago, went to one of my favorite yearly events, the Demolition Derby at the County Fair. And there is definitely an identifying kind of culture that happens when you're there. And I love going there. The, the mixture of smells, uh, the smells of, you know, beer, uh, people, oil, 
antifreeze, burning rubber. It's just there's nothing quite like the county fair. The animal troughs as you go by them. It's just it's, it's a really beautiful essence if you really appreciate that kind of thing. It identifies that. And furthermore, when you people watch a little bit at those places, you see that there's a, a similarity in, in wardrobe, uh, the way people dress. Uh, could be the sleeveless shirt with multiple tattoos of various people's names on them and, and certain hairstyles and certain ways of talking. It, you know what? That's true everywhere you go. If someone came here, they would say something similar of us. If they were maybe from a different identifying group, they would say, you look different and this is how you look and this is how you're identified. Now, you don't feel like that, but people would look at us and identify us. I remember when I went to Moody Bible Institute downtown and there's some of our, some of our students are going there. Uh, you know, these naive white suburbanites would go to Cabrini Green at that time, one of the most uh, uh, intense uh, projects in all of the country. And we would have Big Brother programs there. And, and really, they would leave the Moody students alone with all the, the gang activity there. Parents, you can be assured, those who are sending your kids to Moody, they know who your kids are. And, and they really don't bother them. Because you're easy to identify. Your kids will really stick out. We are identified a certain way by the way we look and the way we carry ourselves. We all have identities, multiple identities that we may claim. Yesterday, I participated in a triathlon. Now, I've been training, but I clearly don't fool myself into thinking that I'm necessarily a triathlete. I just did it as something to keep myself accountable to exercising, watching what I ate and so forth. So I felt all right until I got there and saw all these malnourished people in spandex and realized I'm not one of these. I am not a runner. I look more like a linebacker compared to these folks. Unfortunately, you can't run them over because they're running past you most of the time or swimming past you or riding past you. I mean, I knew I was in trouble because they put your age on your right calf. And as I'm riding up and I'm huffing up this huge hill, I looked at the number 66 on this man's leg and he's passing by me as he goes. I mean, he's retired and he's just ripping by me up the top of the hill. These people are identified in a certain way and it, there's a culture around it. In fact, they bring their bikes and they bring their stuff and they got their station set up and I felt totally weird. I was sitting there thinking to myself, I don't belong here. I don't even know how to talk to them as they got their, their gel packs out and they, they got their one pair for running shoes, one pair for riding shoes. Their bikes, thousands of dollars sunk into these bikes and I'm there with my mountain bike all ready to go and everywhere you go, you will notice there's a sense in which you feel in or out of that identity group. You all have it. We all have it. You're here to some degree because you have some level of comfort with this group. I would only submit to you that there's nothing necessarily wrong with these identities we have. I call them second, third, fourth, fifth level identities. The problem is when those identities over, overarch or supplant the prime identity every one of us ought to have and celebrate and focus and see everything through. There is only one identity that ultimately matters eternally, and that's what Paul climaxes this whole chapter with when he says very clearly in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Your primary identity, brothers, sisters, is that you are a child of God. That's your primary identity. So, therefore, whatever else you do as a second, third, fourth level identity... They become callings to live out your primary identity as a children of a child of God. They are not the thing that is the idol of your life. Being a mom and your children should not be the idols of your life. Being a father, your children, your families, or your, or your leadership of it should not be the idol of your life. They should be the mechanisms that God uses to show forth that you are his child with his priorities. Same is true with anything you can think of, right from athletics all the way to the hobbies we do. 
They're fine if they're understood in right relationship to your primary identity, which God says that you are a child of God by faith in Christ. This is what the essence of the chapter comes to a head concerning. In fact, this chapter, these last three verses anyways, 27, 28, and 29, are just full of Christ, full of union with Christ, identity with Jesus. It says in verse 27, baptized into Christ, put on Christ. And the term put on Christ is directly related to the Greek concept of putting on putting on a cloak that identifies you. If it's put on, it's a big heavy garment that's put on and it's clear who you are. Put on Christ. He's your identity now. That's what it's saying. Verse 28, all one in Christ Jesus. So any unity we enjoy is not around those second, third, fourth level things we do. We may have some things in common. That's fine. But our unity comes from our relationship to Christ, not the fact that we're this or that or the other thing. Verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Multiple ways you see how it is that our faith in Christ is what brings us unity and should be our ultimate, ultimate identity as children of God. We'll see here in these last verses of chapter 3 that faith in Christ makes us God's sons and daughters. We're related now rightly to God. He's our father. We're adopted sons and daughters because of what Christ has done. Therefore, we are now brothers and sisters together. There's a, a relationship with God that is now set right, and we are now related to one another as brothers and sisters. That's family that transcends all social categories that we could come up with. Now, let's look at the text and see how there are several results that come from being rightly related to Christ by faith. We are children of God. Or we're one with each other, a communion with each other. We're Abraham's offspring. Verse 26 and verse 27 Notice there's a very clear identity for the children of God. Several ways in which the text identifies the children of God, sons of God, Abraham's offspring. But look at the identity in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the unity of the brothers and sisters gathered here in, in abroad is certainly what is in view here. It's the unity of those who come to call Christ Savior and Lord by God's grace. There's a unity that transcends all the various things that usually separate us. And the element that unifies the people of God is simply this, faith in Christ. It's not membership uh, in a particular nation or ethnic group or cultural class, a family, a church, even a denomination. It has to do with being rightly related to God through faith in Christ. That is the unifying element that makes us sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. Now, notice what it says closely. We want to be careful to understand what Paul is saying. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, please recognize Galatians is being written to the church. This is not a general letter to go out on public broadcast for any human being that's alive. The particular sphere of discourse, who Paul is addressing, is the church. Remember, this distortion came into the church. He's addressing the church. He's writing to the church. So when he says, you all, he's not referring to every human being is automatically a child of God. He says very specifically, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So he's talking to the church gathered, and he's specifically talking to a group that's divided because there are some in the midst who are saying that they're Jewish and there's a sense of superiority about them that they want the Gentiles to adhere to certain cultural practices that they have. There's a division among them because of this. New believers might feel overpowered by these old, mature believers. And so Paul says, please recognize, you are all sons, equal heirs, 
adopted sons by faith in Christ. doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. That's what he's saying. That's the point of the particular words that Paul uses. No one in any way is automatically a child of God by virtue of their humanity, of being a person. You hear that kind of talk all the time, and it's, it's not helpful. We're all children of God, people will say. Please understand that this relationship with God, to be the child of God, is not natural to us as human beings because of sin in the division wall that is put up between us and God at the fall. No person is born a child of God in that sense. So, the idea of the fatherhood of God, you'll hear people speak of, or even the universal brotherhood of men, those concepts are not biblical concepts. Now, we are all creatures of God, for sure. God is king over everything, so we're subjects. Whether someone admits it or not, he's king. But we are not all children of God. Children of God are identified by faith in Christ, the gift that God gives people to be rightly related with him through Jesus. That's how we're made children of God. That's how we are sons of God, through faith, according to verse 26. And there is something that God gives us to identify this in an official way. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He is making a transference here, making clear that there is a sign for the people of God. The Jews were pushing circumcision. And they were trying to say circumcision is actually part of what's saved. That's not what Paul's saying. But he is saying that there is a sign. And the sign now is baptism. In this symbolize it's like putting on that cloak it shows that you are in christ it is god's sign and it's god's seal of his covenant now let's understand what we mean by sign and seal it's important when we say that baptism here is a sign it's something that signifies another thing it signifies something profound the washing away of our sins it gives us a signature a picture a symbol of the washing away of our sins so it's important for that reason it pictures what god does by faith. Also, it's a seal. It's a seal in that it is like an official mark of the king. In antiquity, they before there was certified mail and in more secure ways of delivering mail, uh, it was by horseback and or by foot sometimes. And someone would take a piece of paper and they put it in trifold and on the trifold they fold it out and they put a piece of wax right on the seal on the part that would seal and hold it in trifold form. And the king would take his ring, which was distinguishable only to a few, and it was only his king, his, his signature, his seal, and he would press it down upon that seal, and it would be sure that it's from the king. And it would be delivered to the person. The person would see it and say, I know that that's so-and-so's signature. It's his. What it says here is true because it's from him. That's what baptism is. It's true what it signifies because it's from God. He gave us the sign, and he gave us the seal. That's why it's important. It's profound. It's part of what God uses to set apart those who are within and those who are without. It's very important in that sense. We have a clear identity now, and it's manifested or shown by the act of baptism that we're commanded to do. And note that it doesn't matter the effectiveness of that sign. It doesn't matter whether it happens before or after uh, the actual rite of baptism occurs. Uh, we don't assume when a child is baptized that they have been infused with something. We believe that God in his time and in his in his ways and providentially, will bring that child to faith in Christ. And that baptism sign, gives us the sign of that and seals that fact. And then it might happen later after the baptism. Same if someone comes to faith in Christ, or professes faith in Christ, and we baptize them as adults. We don't assume that that water somehow magically now imparted something. We are applying the sign and the seal that God says he uses to identify 
saving faith, which is faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Philip Ryken says well in his commentary, we are given a sign and a seal of our adoption, namely baptism. The sacrament is not the method of our salvation any more than circumcision ever was. By itself, water baptism, whether administered to children or adults, does not make us children of God. But it is an outward sign of our adoption, which we receive by faith in Jesus Christ. So here we have identified the children of God. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now look at verse 28. We see that faith in Christ puts us in union with him. And this is so blessed that it puts us now in communion with each other. Verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither, there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's focus on the last phrase first. You are all one in Christ Jesus. What God has established in Christ truly is nothing less than a new humanity. Our relationship to one another is based entirely on our relationship with him. You know that to be true among fellow believers. That has placed you in a, in a new relationship. But you could say the same is true for anyone you're related with. Your relationship with other people is entirely defined by whether or not you or they have a relationship with God. It's different if they do not have a relationship with God as you do. It's as true as it can be on earth if you do have a relationship with God, your father, because he's your father jointly. As we are united to him, God, by faith in Christ, we then become united to one another as fellow believers, as fellow sons and daughters of the king. So union with Christ is the basis for our communion together. Our community together is based on union with Christ. It's not based on socioeconomics. It's not based on location as such or what we do for a living. I know the church has come to take on a certain personality because of where they're located and so forth. But please let no one ever forget that what makes us a community, why we come together, is not because we have better programs in that church or at this particular moment tend to be doing this better or they're doing it worse or whatever the case. It's our union with Christ is what gives us community. That's the main reason we're together right now. Union with Christ, the basis for our communion as saints. You know, often enough we recite the Apostles' Creed which is a wise thing, I believe, because it unites us with fellow believers throughout the centuries that have said that creed. The last portion says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And we're careful to note the Catholic Church's creed predates the Roman Catholic Church. And so it's a small C, meaning the universal church, meaning all those who believe what this creed says, united in faith, united to God by faith in Christ, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body. We say it regularly enough. Do we think about what it means? The communion of the saints. The communion of the saints is part of a creed we say. Because we believe if we're united to God through Christ, we're then united to each other. And there's a communion, a holy communion. One that God ordains and has given us direction concerning. Even more explicitly, our own confessional standards, uh, the Westminster Confession, which we believe is a great expression of what the Bible teaches. It's It's subject to the Bible, but it does a good job of explaining what the Bible teaches. And listen to the first section on the communion of the saints in the 26th chapter of our confession. It says, all saints, those who trust in Christ, that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him and his graces. So we're in relationship with God. 
sufferings, Jesus' sufferings, his death, his resurrection and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. Very simply, we are united together with all those who call upon the name of Christ for salvation, and specifically in this local community, we have a communion that transcends how different we all are. And we are different. Even in a relatively homogeneous church, we're still different people. You know it if you get together with each other, we're different, we're diverse. Yet, coming up over all of that diversity is this this essential sense of family and community that means that we will simply do for each other what needs to be done because we love each other by our relationship with God. And I have always been impressed and blessed by the occasions we had in the church where the leaders have come to you and said, we have this need for these people. We won't always say who it is and exactly what what it's about concerning details. And people just give monetarily of their stuff. They pour out on people love because they know it's their family and they have to do that because that's what families do. That's what the church does. I've seen it over and over over the years here. But beyond this, beyond this, we care for each other in many other ways. We share in each other's sufferings. You know, there's a family who's, who's likely about to lose their mother. And so we gather around that family because they're our family and we feel their burden and their grief and their mourning too. That's what we do. And if we don't, if we don't have the means to do it, at least within people in the church, then, then something's happened where we're no longer practicing the communion of saints like we should. It's true of so many other things. We share in the blessings of each other. When we're blessed, we share that blessing by the gifts we have. We give them back. We put them into the community. God has given great gifts to the church. He's given all the gifts that there can be given for a church to work well and to care for one another have been given to the church. Please recognize they haven't been given to just individuals or no one family has all the gifts of the spirit. It's the church that's been given the gifts of the Spirit. And as a church, communally together, then we edify Christ by edifying one another, exercising those gifts. We share in each other's blessings. We have communion with each other because of this. I love the passage it will come to in chapter 6 of Galatians where it says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. The church should do good to everyone. And especially, Paul says, to those who are the household of faith. He's saying especially to family members. You know, family members say hard things to each other, too. What good family just ignores a problem that's going on? That, that's not, people don't love each other when they just ignore something that needs to be said or needs to be addressed. And it's uncomfortable, but that's what a real family does, and that's where real growth happens. And that's actual, authentic community. Speaking the truth together in love, compassionately for one another. Notice what else we learn from this passage in verse 28. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's no male and female. Faith in Christ transcends all the usual social categories that are constructed. Now, I don't mean to say that these are expressly social categories, but we think of them in these terms. For some of the reasons I alluded to earlier, we look around and see people different than us for whatever reason. And and we think in division. That's how we think. And that's still true. We still battle that as Christians. It's not like the fact that God takes away these barriers when it comes to justification, that they're gone in our own practical living. But we are to strive towards seeing things the way God sees them. Notice the various social categories referenced by Paul here. Jew nor Greek. He's referring to, to race. There's, there's not a particular race that's favorable to God. 
class. There's neither slave nor free. That's two classes of people that lived especially in the first century when this is written. Of the slave who is an indentured servant at least, maybe worse. Free, someone who had the ability to build business, build enterprise, so forth. They were in different classes necessarily. So class is referenced. And finally, no male and female. Gender would be the other major divider, especially in the first century, as women weren't even given status with men in those days. Terribly mistreated. And so you have all these usual social categories. Paul says none of them stand up when it comes to God's favor being shown to people as they come to faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is not discriminatory based on race, based on class, or based on gender. God pours out his grace on all these groups according to his will and his good pleasure. And we should recognize that the identifying feature then is not wrapped up in race, class, or gender, but in whether or not a person knows Christ. That's the issue. Now, we have to be careful on this passage in particular in verse 28 to see what Paul is saying since this verse has been wrenched out of context multiple times by multiple groups that are trying to simply obliterate any kind of distinction between people when we're in Christ. And what they fail to recognize is what you know because we've been studying the context that the verse has specific reference to the issue of who is justified by faith in Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free, a man or a woman. Faith in Christ transcends these kinds of divisions. That's the point. It seems clear when you read it in context. But if you would just yank it out of its context, you can probably advocate for all sorts of distinctions being brought down. All sorts of them. And especially hijacked has been the portion where it says there's no male and female. I've heard it multiple times given as a reason for why there should be no gender distinctions in the church, specifically with church leadership. It's an off, a question we get often when you see on the elder list that there are male elders or male deacons. And people come from places that are not used to that and they'll ask why. And we'll say basically it's because First Timothy and Titus expressly show that the office bearers of the church should be male. Now, what we never get a chance to fully say is it's not about quality. It's not about whether the person is more or less able. Nothing to do with it. It's just about God's distinction in role that we are to carry out. It has nothing to do with essence. One isn't superior to the other. It's just that God has given certain particular roles really to both sexes that the other one can't carry out the same way. And God ordains and orders it to be just that way. And so they'll say, but wait a minute, there's no male and female anymore. But that's not what this is saying, and it doesn't nullify what 1 Timothy says, what Titus says, what 1 Corinthians 11 says. Rather, this is a passage speaking of the fact that God does not discriminate among any human being as it relates to justification by faith in Christ alone. That's important for us to understand to address that kind of argument against carrying out specific distinctions that God gives to happen within the church. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Going back to the first verse, that it's by relationship with Christ that we are children of God. So it's important for us practically to apply this in that we should never look down upon anybody of any distinction or division or category that's erected and think somehow that they mean less to God because they don't. God has redeemed the people for himself and are of equal value to God. And they may have different roles and different callings in this life that place them in different places. But make no mistake, they are all equal to God in his consideration of them because they are united together by faith with his son whom he loves. 
So he loves them with equality. We ought to do our best to carry out that kind of compassion, that kind of equality in the way we look at people and not consider anyone less than because they're not like us in some way. And ultimately, the calling of God to all of us that transcends all of these divisions and discussions and even arguments is that God calls all of us to lay our life down for other people. And when you even think in terms of the specific roles that God gives husbands and wives, for instance, what does he say to the husband? Lay your life down for the wife. Make yourself less. I think much of this argument is because so many men fail to lay their life down and they 